Hi, I'm Michelle Fenton, and welcome to the Happy Texture Podcast. What would it take to develop resilient, sustainable communities? How do we design cities that support our collective happiness? Join me as my guests and I discuss how we can plan, implement, and foster places that allow us to flourish and grow. Our special guest today is Rajiv Janjiani. He is the president, associate president of Kwantlen Polytechnic University in British Columbia. He's also the co-founder of the Open Pedagogy Notebook and serves in the BC Open Education Advisory Committee. Rajiv has written a number of books and, or co-edited a number of books, including Open, The Philosophy and Practices that are Revolutionizing Education and Science, and also co-edited Open at the Margins. Rajiv, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for coming and spending time with us. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's a joy and a privilege to be with you. Awesome. Well, in one of your writings, one of the most beautiful and powerful things that really struck me was your direct quote, the open education movement wants to be a force for equity. The argument is straightforward and powerful. I just thought that was so simple yet and so engaging. And I wonder if we can start the discussion there. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I think from my perspective, my own lived experience has revealed the the transformative power of several things. You know, there's compassionate educators in in my own personal history. There's there's people who extended themselves, personal kindnesses that allowed education to to unlock many doors for me. And so for me, this notion of education being you know having the potential to transform or or, or unlock human potential. To, to to foster social and economic mobility is not a theoretical construct. It's very much my lived experience. And, and from my perspective, I think open education is really at the core of what all education ought to be, which is transforming society, advancing social justice, not simply reinforcing and replicating existing power hierarchies in mm-hmm. society, right? So, so it's a real push against the elitism that you often see in higher education. Right. It, it's, it, it's the idea of everyone everywhere should have access to high quality education and experiences and really trying to work to, to remove barriers to achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to touch back on a point you talk about unlocking the human potential. And, you know, as a as an educator, that's really at the core of what the joy of teaching, the joy of educating. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, I, I mean, we, we, we're hearing a lot of talk about decolonialization or the structure, this, this uh, rigid structure of teaching and education. What's the difference between our current, let's say, standard system of education and open education and in, in the context of unlocking the human potential? Mm-hmm. Well, I think for one, you know, open education is a, even though many people have come to this over the last decade or so, it's, it's a fairly old philosophy. It's an older approach. And it's one that's been pioneered by many of the open universities and the distance universities around the world where they are very familiar in trying to bring education to the masses. It's sort of the democratization of education, not erecting as many financial barriers, um, overcoming geographic barriers, for example, in, in trying to, in trying to really, really 
um, not reserve education just for the privileged. Uh, and so, you know, I think open education itself can involve many things. In practical terms, it's about lowering costs, but it's also partly about, you know, moving from the top-down flow of, of expertise to really co-constructing knowledge in the public commons, recognizing that, you know, there's more than just the instructor's expertise in, in the classroom. And that's not something that's threatening. That's a, that's a reality that's long been ignored. Mm-hmm. But allowing people to, to, you know, reaching people where they are and inviting them to participate in that co-creation in a way that doesn't ignore their expertise and, and that acknowledges that, that historically there are only certain kinds of approaches to, to knowledge making certain epistemologies that have been, been admitted into the academy or considered legitimate. Uh, and I think this is where decolonization, certainly in the context of the academy, means many things. It, it's, a, it's particularly about serving indigenous learners who've long been experiencing not just neglect, but but direct harm by society writ large. Um, and of course, the academy is often an extension and a reflection of society. And so part of this is, I think, redesigning higher education in a way that that acknowledges what our what our goals ought to be. You know, mm-hmm. many of our structures, many of our systems wouldn't look the way they do now if they had been designed with that intent from, from the get-go and if we hadn't simply continued to carry them forward through inertia. Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see that argument of uh, or the dialogue of decolonialization coming through in many in many places, architecture, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, learning, financial systems, you know, there's when we think about decolonialization, I know it sounds like a big scary word, but but we're really talking about access for all equity, really, um, which it's easier for people to grasp that concept of equity than decolonialization. So I just wanted to touch mm-hmm. a little bit on that because you know people hear that word and they get a little resistive, <laughs> resistant. Um, and so one of the things that in our last conversation we had a really lovely conversation. We we're talking about the margins. Right. And when we talk about equity and when we talk about decolonialization, when we talk about colonialization, let's just touch on that for a little bit. What we really mean is a series of systems that are homogeneous in its uh, etiology, in its in the way it was formed. And when we talk about decolonializing those systems, we're really talking about taking a step back and looking at all the available wisdoms that are there for us to partake in. We, you just mentioned uh, Indigenous people and the incredible loss to not just Indigenous people, to all of us when we are not, we don't, when we don't have access to that knowledge and that wisdom. And so I want to touch a little bit on the quote we you had. I love this quote so much. You said, if we design for the margins, then everyone is included. Yeah. I mean, I think, that for me captures a, a part of the core of what we're trying to achieve over here. I mean, I think it's in part just taking a step back, looking at our systems, looking at our practices and thinking, is this how we would want it to be? If we were designing from scratch, would we really design, you know, four-year degrees that assume that students can can all complete a, a full course load, that none of them are effectively working or have family responsibilities when we mm-hmm. assign homework or, or we think about what, what, what kind of workload they can manage. We're making these assumptions, right? The system is still very much built, assuming that we're dealing with, let's say, 18 to 22-year-olds coming out of high school exclusively when so-called non-traditional learners have been vastly outpacing so-called traditional learners for quite some time. And so mm-hmm. for me, it's 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 really kind of shifting the frame from 
Um, and it's not even a job, just about age or about you know people who are, are employed or having to work or who don't have the means to, to simply have their families fund their education. It's it's recognizing, you know, if you are a, a student with a particular disability, why should the onus be on you to to make right. the argument for yourself to be accommodated for the system to effectively be retrofitted in a way that requires you to a out yourself. And, and advocate for yourself in a way that that sets you apart from everybody else. Mm-hmm. So and and so rather than that, designing systems, designing instruction, designing the educational experience so, so that it welcomes truly everyone. And so nobody needs to be asked to be accommodated. You're designing. I mean, this is you know the principle of universal design for learning, effectively. Right. But it's the idea that that if you do design systems inclusively, you don't need to retrofit, right? So, and there are so many additional benefits that you will never foresee. It, it reminds me of, of, you know, design justice in the context of when, when people were advocating for curb cuts, uh, you know, back in the day. In, right. and, and of course, you know, they're still doing it in, in many cities where this is not a norm yet, you know, going, mm-hmm. going crossing, uh, crossing the street from the sidewalk. And initially, you might be thinking, "Oh, well, this is perhaps to accommodate those, let's say, for example, uh, who are, who are, who need wheelchairs for mobility." But then you realize, "Oh no, older people who are who are using strollers, um, you know, uh, young parents carrying, you know, pushing their kids in strollers for that matter, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, uh, teenagers on skateboards or adults on skateboards for that matter." And all of a sudden, you realize that it's not just the one audience, and and you really could have done this differently all along. And, and I think that's true in the classroom as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and certainly over the last year and a half, many people with the shift to online instruction have realized, ah, well, you know, I should caption my videos and I should provide these recordings for my, for my learners. And, and you might think that, oh, you know, perhaps the captioning, you know, several years ago might be thought of as an accommodation for students uh, who have difficulties with hearing, perhaps. But now you realize that that all students will benefit from the ability to pause, to, to rewatch international students, perhaps who have, who, or if there's you know differences in accents, there are benefits across the board from designing inclusively. And, and it again, I think just shifts the focus from, you know, you're not just an exception who's been admitted to the table temporarily. This right. is truly a space that welcomes you. Yes. I think that that's one of the things that is so beautiful about that quote is that we, we, I mean, and I, I really appreciate you bringing up an, an architectural or design reference of the curb cut, because we see it in buildings all the time where uh, accessibility for someone who is mobility challenged is something mm-hmm. of, okay, we have to accommodate it as an afterthought. But I mean, the promise is we start including design that is for everybody mm-hmm. at the margins. And your, your, your ask is a radical shift in how we actually think about where we start the starting point and even yeah. who shows up who shows up at the table yeah i'm going to i'm going to interrogate that just a little bit please, because, just please because do. of the way when you talk about me pu- pushing for a radical shift i mean i think that that's certainly you know you could frame it that way i would suggest that our continual reluctance to truly deliver equitable education is what's radical you know right. it's, it's kind of absurd in in how radical it is you mm-hmm. know but no, I think we're on the same page, and except that I, I think just like 
physical architecture, when you think about you know, hostile architecture, for example, and you know the benches that are designed to specifically prevent homeless people from sleeping on them, uh, yeah. uh, for example, you see that too, right? So it's not just that that, that that's a neutral. Some elements of our systems are actively hostile. Uh, and certainly when it comes to education, you see this with you know, algorithms within, let's say, remote proctoring technologies that are used for online assessments that actively discriminate, right? That mm-hmm. actively you know, disproportionately flag people of color students of color um, as, as potentially cheating just because it, it doesn't quite detect their skin tones quite as well. Or, right. you know, if, an, uh, if, a, if a student needs to visit the washroom, uh, it again penalizes them in a way that that is quite ableist. So I, I would say a lot of our digital technol- uh, infrastructure in higher ed and of course our physical infrastructure can often be actively hostile. And so it's, it's a shift in a way, not just from neutral to positive, but it's a shift from, from some quite active hostility. Um, and I think part of the reason for this, of course, is, is who's invited to the table, who gets to make those decisions, whose experiences are reflected at those decision-making tables, right? And I know in my experience, I somehow magically managed to go through all of my undergraduate and graduate training here in the Lower Mainland at, at you know major institutions over here without ever encountering a single instructor of color, which today is perhaps a little less common, I would yes. hope. Uh, but of course, you know, this is true even if you look to, to leadership in higher education as well. So Absolutely. I do think, you know, yeah. there's the the it's not an accident that the systems tend to tend to replicate and reinforce these social hierarchies. It's yeah. just who's at the table. Yes. I mean, that, that I, I, I really appreciate your challenging pushing back on that, because in a way, if we actually shift or if we turn this upside down on its head, what is radical is our resistance to accepting a potential for everyone to have a seat at the table and not just everyone to have a seat at the table to check the boxes, but like the incredible potential for what the world can look like mm-hmm. when we have all of those voices there. Um, I mean, you're you're in in the education system, and Kwantlen is certainly open to, or well, not just open. They're actively pursuing open education as part of their mandate. What is that? What's the potential for a university, not just Kwantlen, but generally speaking? We might we could say we had a bit of a dry run with COVID. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that just opened our eyes to the possible of how quickly we adopted. To something that was that was seemingly quote unquote radical to think about, right? Yeah, and, I think so. And so, where are we now in terms of the lessons learned from COVID and the ability to transform education and provide it openly? I know when, when I say tra- uh, openly, I'm not talking about the open education model. I'm talking about access because the open education model is quite a complex series mm-hmm. of systems and and uh, dialogues that we could probably talk about for. A number of episodes, but um, you know, when when we think about the potential, the little the little test drive we had during COVID, what is the potential for universities to start to not just have access, but open education? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that question. I mean, I, you know, in reflecting on the experience of the last couple of years, it has been extraordinary, of course, and mm-hmm. and. But I think it's been it's been extraordinary in a very nuanced way at the same time. I mean, one of the things it's done is it's brought a lot more attention to to inequities within the system, within society that were always there. These are not new things, but they became a little more visible, for example. But 
the other thing it did is it exacerbated many inequities, right? So mm-hmm. if there was an immediate shift by universities across the board, for example, all right, folks, we're going online. All of your classes are going to be online now. All of a sudden, people perhaps for the first time were thinking, wait a minute, do my students have laptops at home? Do they have a right. quiet place to study? Do they have webcams? Am I requiring my students to have their webcam on during an assessment, even when they don't have such devices? And I'm requiring them to go out and purchase it at the precise time when the demand is so high that the prices are rising. Mm. Do they have reliable internet access? And if Starbucks is now closed, where are they going to go? And, right. You know, so all of a sudden, you know, you can have a situation where, and it's happened in many places where the inequities were exacerbated through, you know, thoughtless transitions that were, I think in many ways, an indictment of the of the persistent neglect of these inequities within the system. And so the positive side is, I think, the awareness and the attention to these inequities that were, you know, not at the level it should have been, has been rising. And there have been genuine efforts. But at the same time, I think this it's been a complicated landscape in part because there are existing tendencies and and approaches in education that again can be replicated in in digital spaces and mm-hmm. and so for example you know i think there's very different approaches to 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 teaching philosophies one example is do you start from a place of trust with your students right or are you interpreting rigor as as the percentage of students who don't complete your course successfully? Do you take that as a badge of honor? And that's just two illustrations of very different approaches or starting points as, as educators. And you can see how in a digital environment, this can really, really get exacerbated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, mental health was suffering, employment opportunities were shrinking, and some instructors, for example, would react to this by this sort of loss of control of I can't see and control and see what's happening with my with my students in the classroom. There's so much I need to do that's unfamiliar, huge learning curve, massive stress on instructors. Yeah. And in some cases, the reaction to that is trying to, to wrestle even more control by adding more work to already overburdened, exhausted, burnt out students or, right. or, or, or creating more surveillance in terms of the teaching and learning experience, whereas others recognize that that everybody's under strain and stress and perhaps this is the time to strip down a little bit and, right. and reduce the workload and 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 think more about what is it that we're trying to achieve yes i want my learners to you know complete this course with the knowledge of this specific concept but how, how what do i want their lives to look like in a way that's different after they take the course what are the enduring what's the enduring legacy of this experience mm-hmm. and in most cases with transformative educational experience I hate to tell you, it's not, you know, it's not a definition of classical conditioning. It's not a memorization of the periodic table that'll do it. It's right. it's the perception that you, you know, there are there's somebody who believes in you, who who believes that you have something of value, who's demonstrated compassion, who's modeled for you what generosity in this world can look like. And it's those transformative moments, I think, that are really, you know, you can talk about, you know, the the content as being the the gas in the engine, you need it to drive education, but that's not what it's about, right? That's not what it's about. That the, the magic is not in the content. It's about that, that experience of the, that, that look you have in the classroom when a student has those insights, when, you, when something is being unpeeled by themselves, for themselves in that moment where they're building that sense of efficacy, where they feel, you know what? I, I do belong. I, I have a sense that I'm not an imposter. I do have something to bring. I have something original to contribute. And, and it's that sense of inclusion, I think, that is incredibly powerful. And so for me, the, the, the last couple of years has had that potential. And we've been really, in many places in higher ed, working to, to, to 
you know, widen that that doorway. Thank you for that. I mean, I wish everyone had uh, an educator as amazing and thoughtful and kind as you. I think the world would probably be a better place if this is this is where we're coming from, where where education is not about the memorization, but it's who who do you want? What do you want the world to look like? What do you want humanity to look like? And the in the end game, and and education is the tool to help people access their humanity in a way. And so. When you talk about access, online access, we we generally think about it as fair, but you mentioned lack of tools, lack of access to tools, and that really brings up the the idea of the human rights and social justice aspect of education, yeah. right? And and something that we take for granted that, and we assume that because it's now online and, and readily available that we've taken a really great step towards open education and access for all. Uh, however, the opposite is probably more true uh, unless we actually step back and think about not just what we want, what we want the uh, grades to be in the papers to look like, but who we want that person to become, who we, what, what do we want them to contribute to society? Yeah, I, I quite agree. And, and, and I appreciate your kind words, by the way, but, but I have to say that, you know, the reason why I've I've thought about this in this way, and this is my approach to, to teaching and learning and, and trying to support this approach to teaching and learning, certainly among our faculty at, at KPU, and there's so many compassionate, incredible educators, is because it's been modeled to me for me a lot. I mean, I know when I was a, an international student first in, in this country, I was in my first semester feeling homesick halfway around the world from my family, trying to figure out if 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 you know if I was going to persist, if I could make it, if I would feel at home in this country. And, and and I had this wonderful, wonderful instructor and it wasn't the content, right? So he did influence me in many ways. Certainly he was a psychologist. I went on to become a psychologist in part because of his influence, but it wasn't that it was outside of the classroom, right? He went out of his way to make sure I was doing okay. He knew this was my first month in, in, a, in a different country. And it was that connection. It was that magic. And I remember, and there's a few times in my life where I've prayed with as much intensity as I did that moment, but I still recall standing at the bus loop uh, at my university at the time that, you know, during that first semester thinking, Lord, please let me do this. This is what I want to do for somebody else. I had no question. And from then on, my path was, was quite clear. So I, you know, have to, I have a huge, huge debt of gratitude to, to the many, many educators who've, who've modeled for me what education can look like and, and the mm-hmm. magic that it actually contains. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think with with the systems, with education itself, it is so interesting and nuanced, and 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 you can take it many different directions. I, I'm glad right now there's a there's a promise wide conversation about what does quality education online even look like, and it's no longer just limited to questions of you know consistency of of the outcomes of a given course, but there's questions about accessibility and equity, um, and 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 these are critical, of course, because it, again, if we if we bluntly understand what quality means like it will be quality from you know with with the with a set of assumptions and those assumptions will tend to be elitist will tend to be ableist mm-hmm. at the very least and so i'm glad to see that the conversation has advanced quite a bit um i do think that you know there are real benefits to the to to online that has provided flexibility it's demonstrated for many the flexibility that open universities and distance universities have always been able to deliver in spades but 
you know, not requiring your learners to come to campus unless it's actually needed. I mean, if, if you're going to invite them to, to travel for an hour each way, make childcare arrangements, you know, yeah. uh, shift their work schedules and all of that to come to campus, it better not be to, to have an instructor drone on for three hours at them without any active participation. <laughs> I mean, you can do that way better in, in smaller ways online uh, in a way that's more effective for learning. And so it, it's been really fun to see uh, certainly overseeing the teaching and learning training uh, at my institution, which, you know, is one of the larger institutions in this province, just that the degree of engagement that uh, that faculty have had, there's been so much learning. And so, you know, as much as I can criticize the structures and systems on higher ed, I have to say, you know, I, I think I really have to tip my hat to, to, to my fellow educators. There's been some extraordinary, I mean, truly, truly, um, you know, incredible efforts that have been expended to try and make sure that that nobody was being left behind, that they were designing for the margins. Right. And often instructors took on that, that burden in a very personal way. Now, of course, my goal is to try and make it so that the systems don't make it so that you're swimming against the tide if you want to be a compassionate, inclusive educator. So there's a lot of, lot of uh, you know, a lot more we need to do, certainly. But but I, I think the conversation has been opened and and demonstrated in a very powerful way these past couple of years. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it, it when when you talk about a student coming to to the university campus and spending that time and that and it's an investment then and to to think about it as an investment in their education. Let's let's think about what that campus even looks like from a physical. I know, I know you're mm. you're very engaged in in the, the models of learning, but we've had conversations about architecture and and the way campuses are shaped and classrooms are shaped. And so given that this is the Happy Texture podcast, let's, yeah. let's put a little bit of architecture in there and, and talk about what that campus might look like, right? Because when we think about a classroom, when we think about a lecture hall, that is a very structured hierarchical arrangement. Um, and the question then is, does that structure, physical space, then still serve that student who's making a huge investment to come to campus? That yeah educator who's making that huge investment to be kind and open and and understanding that the education of of their students or their learners are not uh, about uh, being able to pre-see what they read in a book but to be really engaged in being an active human uh, and being a contributor to the betterment of of humankind let's let's ravel let's let's talk a little bit about what that what the possibilities are because I think what happens with architecture is because, and I mean, to be fair, when I went to architecture school, I don't remember being taught anything other than colonial architecture, mm. um, you know, uh, Greeks and Romans and, you know, American architecture and Canadian architecture in a very, uh, let's, let's say, colonial context, right? You walk through a front door, there's security, mm -hmm. there's, when you break a building down, you see, you see it for what it is, a series of spaces that tell a person they either belong or don't belong. Uh, surveillance, you can behave a certain way in a place or not behave a certain way in a place without someone even telling you. So it's very implicit in the way these structures are, are designed. But with this idea of access and equity and inclusiveness, what, is, what does the space look like? What does a university space look like? 
That's a great question. I mean, I know when we when we think about spaces in universities, it's almost like the mind wants to go immediately to what the classroom experience looks exactly. like. But, but yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, several steps before that, absolutely, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's a lovely thing to to interrogate. I think about some of the discussions that have happened over the last couple of years mm-hmm. at, at KPU, for example, you know, across our five campuses at the moment, you you'll see whether it's in some cases the steps or pillars or crosswalks, those are adorned with the progress pride, uh, pride flag, for example. That's a statement. Or, um, uh, you know, for example, you walk into spaces, even, even before you get to the classroom, you know, seeing the gender-neutral classroom or, or uh, washrooms, for example, uh, the yeah. spaces that invite, you know, different spaces. So, so collaborative study space versus individual study space, collaborative social space. Um, you know, the, it, we have a lovely group that's doing some uh, some lovely work right now called the Natural Spaces Advisory Committee. And this is a group that is increasingly looking at the, the reality where many educators are working with their students and have always been working with their students, not in the classroom, but taking advantage of our natural spaces around campus. And, and it could be the wooded areas, it could be, uh, uh, you know, the pond in the middle of one of our courtyards or other things, and how to make those spaces more hospitable, not just for the occasional, you know, fire alarm drill gathering, for example, right. but, but yeah. you know, socialization and learning, and, and that's that formal, informal transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, thinking about the natural spaces, thinking about the public spaces, and certainly, of course, when you get into the classroom as well, that, that you can see the hierarchical nature of absolutely. You know, where is the where is the projector facing? Is that the only option? Is the furniture mm-hmm. movable in the classroom? Are the seats bolted down? Are you therefore saying there's not going to be any collaborative work from a pedagogical perspective, for example? Uh, yes, you to all of those things. By the way, yes, yeah. all of those. Like think about the lecture hall where where the majority of students spend their life and get educated. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's tiered. So let's just say, so let's talk about accessibility. The only mm-hmm. access, the only available place for someone who is mobility challenged is to sit right in the front row. Now they mm-hmm. might have vision problems, too bad, you know? So when you talk about seats are both sit down, you've yeah. got a cup holder to put your cup in that specific place. <laughs> yeah. The lecturers at the front, there's, there's already a system of hierarchy that really yeah. precludes the idea of collaborative open learning. Yeah, I agree. And so, so, uh, just as an illustration, some of the things we've been doing over the last couple of years is certainly a lot of movable furniture now, but even things like from a technological perspective in, in the classroom technology, you know, moving so that we no longer want faculty to be bolted to or tethered to a podium, for example. Right. So, so uh, you know, we're getting all of our faculty new laptops that that connect to these wireless projectors now, but it also means that that you know, for collaborative learning or for peer learning, or again, challenging that hierarchy in the classroom, students can wirelessly project to, to, the, to, the class, uh, to, the, to the class as well, right? So there are obviously design decisions that are being made about what kinds of pedagogies are going to be fostered by, by this environment. And, and I still think we're only scraping the surface of it, of course. Um, but yeah, it's really, really fascinating to think about. We were talking just the other day um, about uh, classrooms that we have that that allow for, you know, six different screens or whiteboards or, or setups. But the the request from the faculty member, and I love this, was they wanted to not have such uh, um, uh, and they used the word uh, such a colonial approach of of the hierarchy in the classroom. They wanted a non hierarchical classroom setup, and of course. It isn't standard across the board. We have spaces that are like this, but it, it, I think it just 
even from you know the options that are available to to what is a more or less uh, expensive option what is more popular or less popular from a vendor's perspective it tells you so much about about the norms within the system i think yes i mean even we're we're even seeing this in office space which is one of the other mm. things that uh, our sponsor core architecture does is we we are starting to look at breaking down the workplace as well and thinking about not just you go to your desk and you sit there and even if mm. you're doing collaborative work now you have to get up and book a meeting room and usually it's the people who are the managers who have access to that mm. uh, but even if you want to do quiet work and you're in an open office you know your 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 work is hindered your productivity is hindered um and so you know when we think about flexibility of space and again we go back to designing for the margins and and the possibility that is out there well let's play the imagination game for a minute how amazing will our world be can our world be when we start thinking about layering all these uses and potentialities into something that is user focused i mean one mm-hmm. of the things in 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 one of the uh, the 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 books that you edited is a content centric to a process centric i just i really love this it's so clear a teacher centric to a, a learner centric practices that are primarily for a ped- pedagogical purpose to one that's primarily for social justice it's very simple not easy but very simple and so i want to i want to just tap into what what is the first step we take as an educator as an architect as a learner as mm-hmm. yeah i mean I- I would say, you know, it is simple, and I think you're right. It isn't easy, in part because it's never going to end, right? I mean, I think part of what we're trying to do over here is is encourage small, you know, baby steps. This is not right. about you. You don't need to. I mean, of course you could, and 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 there are definitely moments where I, you know, when I enter those spaces, I was like burn it all down, burn it all down. <laughs> but but you don't have to, of course, right? Even if you're talking about in something like tangible, let's say you've got a particular assignment that you've designed that you've been using with your students for for years uh, for cohorts and cohorts and cohorts and 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 you've realized that there's some elements of it that that you're starting to realize well you know what if i start to pull on these threads let me just look at my assumptions that are behind it that are baked into this and and if i want to start to question those for me it's about minor small changes and you can keep going but it's just about starting the journey even right. with decolonization for example right now there's so many people who particularly over the last year i think have have come to understand at least the tiniest tiniest bit of the injustices that continue to be perpetrated against indigenous peoples in this country yeah and and want to respond to this particularly in the classroom but there's so much fear because there's a sense of what if i get it wrong or or i, I don't know how to how to approach this and so this is where we can come in and and so for example on my team we we second faculty members in this case an indigenous faculty member uh, with incredible expertise to help the, those conversations but normalize it so just basic kitchen table conversations about here are some small things this doesn't have to be threatening this doesn't have to be all or nothing right. you know encourage that 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 growth and and it's okay right and i think there's so much pressure that educators put on put on themselves to which is again again revealing of that colonial mentality of of no 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 i i need to be the expert in the room it's exactly. very threatening to me to say that yep. to say i don't know or, or or i have to look that up is a threatening thing and even mm-hmm. to share your your practices with others it's it's so territorial it's so competitive often that you even see reluctance to openly share innovative practices either because you know 
people think that they will be found out where there's imposter syndrome, where there's no need to be, um, or or people feel like, oh, I know my secret source is going to be stolen over here if I, if, I, if I share it with a colleague. And so it's all of this sort of mindset that needs to be peeled away to the point where this kind of thinking inhibits that that growth, inhibits the ability to critically self-reflect and look at your practice and say, and say, I know I'm doing okay, but I really want to interrogate what I'm doing. For example, you know, students are using free and open resources, but they're annotating those resources, sometimes augmenting the examples in the text or, or linking to external resources uh, in a way that enriches the resource for future cohorts of students. I mean, yeah. as a student, you know, you have expertise in terms of where the bottleneck concepts are, where are you struggling? And that's expertise that is that is very difficult for instructors to ascertain sometimes and, right. and being able to share those, uh, right? So, or even to go a different route, you know, maybe, I mean, we have we have students who are, instead of, you know, giving oral presentations in the classroom, which take up a whole lot of classroom time with most students just li- sit, sitting passively listening to a lot of students going one after the other, moving those to, to the creation of brief videos that are then shared openly, uh, or moving from research essays that are only going to be seen by the one faculty member in the classroom um, to, to, let's say, editing Wikipedia articles instead. And in a public global knowledge base, um, it's incredible to see how you can achieve the same outcomes that you always intended and use some of the same processes, but just infuse elements of a, or that, that allow you know, a larger audience, a longer life, and a deeper impact for the same kind of work. Yeah. And from an educator's perspective, when, when a student is engaged, when they see that, you know, this assignment is no longer just busy work, I can see the purpose of this. I can see this is going to make a difference in the real world. I'm now writing an op-ed for a local newspaper instead of a private essay that will only be seen by, by, by my instructor. The amount of pride, the amount of creativity, the amount of energy that is poured into that, you see that spark. And when faculty members see that spark coming from students, it reminds them of why they became educators in the first place, yeah. right? So, so for me, it's about just the, you start small, it's baby steps, right? But it's about being open to that self-reflection, to that growth, and to the sharing that enables both of those things. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really great place to maybe take a pause. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I... I really believe in, uh, which is which is one of the, the driving factors for me starting this podcast anyways, is this, this idea of you learn a little bit, you implement it, you go back and you learn, and there's this cycle. It never ends. And I believe uh, Buddhist philosophy even talks about this, that you're always the student, you're always the learner. And, and being open to that concept really starts to remove the resistance to like a, a, a beautiful system. Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, you know, I think it is beautiful and it is inspiring when you see it in action and it's in action so much. But when I take a system level perspective, I think one of the challenges is, is interrogating that, that are we making it so that this approach, which of course is innovative, but, you know, innovation can mean anything. This approach that is, that is authentic and just and is inclusive, is that something that is actually being encouraged by the system? Or in this case, is the, the leading edge effectively the bleeding edge, right? So is it that the, the powers that be, the, those who control tenure and promotion committees, for example, are they going to penalize those who step out of line and push against normative practice in this way? Or are they going to be encouraged? Is the institution going to say, well, you can do this, but it's but you're on your own? Or are we going to create support structures for this kind of work? And so for me, you know, we can look at the incredible educators who are, you know, 
unbelievable. Just innovators, early adopters, they will innovate, you know, not just without support, sometimes despite active opposition, you know, but but to design a system that only supports them is not going to transform the system, right? So we need to change elements of the system that that invite this approach, that are hospitable to this approach, that create the sort of fertile ground for the iterative, reflective, um, uh, you know, inclusive approach that, that we're trying to achieve. And so I never want to place the burden on the individual educator over here, right? I mean, they're, they're exemplars to be sure, but we, we can't leave it to the individual educator. This is about, for me, redesigning the system so mm-hmm. it invites you know, inclusion as normative practice. So amazing. Well, I, I appreciate your passion for this work. And I think with, with yourself and others like you, there, it, there's a huge potential for this, uh, for open education to be something that we really reconsider at this time. I think it's actually critical. And we have an opportunity now that, we've been interrupted, like our our normal practices have been disrupted over the last two years. And instead of being fearful of that, it's a huge potential. And so I really want to thank you for being here to talk about this. And uh, I look forward to maybe having you back on the Happy Texture podcast. Maybe we can talk about something that's shifted and, you know, in in terms of education and in in a real way, we can start to see movement and track that movement through the work that you've been doing, the groundbreaking work you've been doing at Kwantlen. So I really appreciate it. It's been a privilege to spend this time with you. And of course, relish the opportunity to come back. But as we're closing out, I feel a need to also, you know, be very clear that that I have benefited unbelievably from many things. And, and you know, that starts from, for example, my grandparents who paid my way to come to, to study in this country, you know, to have family members who were willing to invest in, in me in, in that way when many others don't. To that educator I was talking about, his name is Michael McNeil, that psychology educator back in the day who transformed my, my vision of what, what I wanted to do in this world, to even my present day team. So I have to say, you know, it's a special thing to work at an institution that is open access by design, first of all. So we're not interested right. in being elitist. And especially, I think that the transformative team in our teaching and learning commons, that's really trying to engineer some culture change over here, um, just by creating that more hospitable system. So, you know, for me, I I benefit from all of these and and I will always need to pay tribute to to those around me who, who, you know, allow us to do this kind of work. But it's been a joy of chatting with you. Thank you so much for being here. Look forward to talking to you again. Anytime. Take care. For more information on this or any other episodes of the Happy Texture podcast, you can find us at happytexture.com. H-A-P-P-I-T-E-C-T-U-R-E.com. Special thanks to our sponsors, Cora Architecture and Interiors. Designing places for being. Post-production by Vanessa Hennessy.